So should we start? Let's yeah. do it. Welcome to the Green Majority, Canada's most elaborate and ornate environmental news hour. And today, Stephen Franklin, Stephen Christian Irwin Hostetter, is going to speak with Dr. Alex Tavasoli, postdoctoral research associate with MIT. And they're going to talk about what on earth are they talking about? I just listened to the entire interview. They're, they're discussing in very grand and large terms the most important aspects of our current infrastructure and culture to focus on immediately for addressing climate change immediately long term. Bracing, restructuring, recalculating what we got going on so that we can survive. They speak centrally about a false dichotomy that's been drawn between purism and pragmatism. What is pragmatic? What's pie in the sky? What needs to be done? How to do it? And here we go. Stefan Hofstetter speaking with Alex Tabasoli back on the show again. My name is Stephen Hostetter, and I am here with friend of the show, Dr. Alex Tavasoli, a postdoctoral associate with MIT. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks. Hi. Glad to be here. What I love about our conversations is that you bring such an unbelievable wealth of knowledge in terms of uh, your background in the sciences and understanding how carbon works, and also your work within the field of actually trying to understand how we can remove carbon or use carbon in different ways. And so I get to ask you all the questions that I'm just like kind of nerdily interested in. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about basically we all, we, we basically, for those of us who really care about tackling climate change, we understand that we have a specific carbon budget left. And for those who don't understand the term carbon budget, basically it means that there's a certain amount of carbon that we know that if we release between now and whenever into the atmosphere, it will create enough warming to go past 1.5 degrees, which is widely considered a very dangerous thing to do. And and so we have that number. I don't have it off my head, but there's a number out there that exists. That's the amount of carbon we can burn. And we are basically, if we are taking this seriously, deciding right now and over the next 10, 20 years, how we want to spend that carbon budget. And there's a whole lot of thoughts going out there. And so we're going to pick at it in a couple of different ways, starting with the first one, uh, which is anyone who's involved in climate politics or climate policy or just pays into climate change at all will have experienced at some point this argument between this idea of the climate purists and the pragmatists. And very rarely will anyone identify as the purist. I would say that there's probably some old growth, uh, sorry, some probably some degrowth people out there who would self-identify as the purists who are like, no, you're right. I just think we should stop all economic activity or slow economic activity down. And that is the pure way of doing this. And that will help everybody. But most times this discourse is mostly about like who gets to call themselves a pragmatist and what does it really mean to be a purist? And so- I'm wondering, Alex, if you can sort of, for, for our listeners, frame out how you've sort of seen that discourse and like what, when I say in a Canadian context, often do, do we mean when someone says they're a climate pragmatist versus a purist? Right. Yeah, for sure. This is an argument, the purist versus the pragmatists that has plagued me since I was in high school and trying to decide what job to get in the sustainability sector. And the way that I experienced it, I guess, 
growing up into my adult self was that purists were the people who were not willing to compromise on the status quo of how our industrial economy works and how our current carbon economy works, which is overwhelmingly caused by or overwhelmingly run by the fossil fuel industry. The vast majority of carbon dioxide emissions come from fossil fuels. And right now, while we're trying to figure out how to reduce those carbon emissions and reduce the atmospheric carbon concentration at the same time, there are two sort of approaches that are at odds with how to achieve our carbon drawdown. One of those is using certain technologies like carbon dioxide capture, utilization, storage, carbon dioxide removal, negative emissions technologies, they all mean the same thing, or that that would ostensibly allow us to continue using the existing infrastructure we have that includes fossil fuels, whereas the alternative to that would be to take the more aggressive approach of total systemic change of our global infrastructure towards full electrification. So just running everything on renewable electricity or at least zero carbon electricity, which is what the IPCC recommends. Um, and in the context of the Canadian carbon economy, that has come to reach a contentious point as it relates to the way that our fossil fuels industry in Canada is being phased out or not phased out. And that's taken the shape of the government offering tax breaks for Canadian oil companies to adopt carbon dioxide capture and storage or utilization systems of various kinds so that our sort of existing economy isn't disrupted too much. You sort of see it even more recently with Trudeau and the Liberals considering backing down on the 2030 expectation of oil and gas reducing their emissions. But I think that this purist versus pragmatist thing extends into all these other little weird ways. So I want to chase this little thing down because it strikes me that when I'm in a conversation, say, with someone who is very pro-nuclear, the argument is ends up being almost the exact same. It's right. Like, well, if you actually cared about climate change, then what you would do is just build 75 nuclear power plants because that's the best way to get base load power that's that is carbon free. Or even in people who are, say, pro car pulling carbon out of the atmosphere will say things like, well, I'm just going to be a pragmatist because we have to reduce emissions somehow. And the people who are against it are like, well, we're pragmatists because we just think it's the cheapest is to not burn it at all. And it's this fascinating and kind of ridiculous argument that it goes, that basically everyone just wants to argue that they are in fact the pragmatist and that the purists or basically people who are just like willing to burn the world, right? Like there's sort of, some of the pragmatists end up being in a more of a center and trying to push people like, you know, those who would be more willing to, just keep burning fossil fuels are not pragmatic because of the situation we are exist in versus, you know, the true purists who might advocate for, no, we should do whatever it takes, no matter what, and, you know, economy be damned, really. It's really the pragmatists that are calling the purists purists. It's never the purists who are calling the pragmatists pragmatists, right? And the, the way that the pragmatists are self-identified, for example, the Canadian government has self-identified itself as taking the pragmatic approach, is directly tied to the IPCC mitigation model that is associated with having the lowest cost. And those the, the IPCC models out different carbon drawdown scenarios and correlates those to different warming situations for the environment. And so a lot of the rollout scenarios that limit average global temperature rises to below 1.5 degrees are the ones that advocate for phasing out fossil fuels as quickly as possible and going the full electrification route, not relying on whether carbon dioxide capture technology is going to achieve the performance metrics that the salespeople say it's going to achieve. And the pragmatic approach is also constrained in their models by projected economic growth scenarios. So none of these models that are considered by the IPCC really take degrowth into account. And degrowth is, is I would put that 
solidly in the purit purist camp <laughs> as an argument. That's not really an option that I see have seen any government advocate for. And the this pragmatist approach, the cheapest economic option includes overshooting the 1.5 degree scenario for several decades before these carbon dioxide removal schemes begin pulling enough carbon dioxide out of the air to bring us back to 1.5 degrees Celsius. But there are a couple issues with that. One, a 1.5 degree warmed world will not be pleasant to live in. It's going to be very, even more extreme weather than we have currently. There will be more insect collapse and ecosystem collapse, and that will not be a world that we recognize. So having governments sort of frame that as the an, an option, the purest option is not really accurate as well, because it, it will still be very destructive. The overshooting models make even less sense because they tend to communicate them as though we'll have a couple bad years and then we'll return to this this 1.5 degree world and everything will be fine. But the ecosystems that we have on the planet that allow our carbon cycles and agricultural systems to work don't really work that way. If you warm the world to two degrees and you kill all the worms, it won't matter if you cool it back to 1.5 degrees because you won't be able to grow any food. So I would argue that given the way that governments are choosing to go about this right now and a lot of the pushback that we're seeing on really every option to transform the economy, I think it, nuclear nuclear energy is definitely falls more in the pragmatic camp these days and is a very viable option for maintaining a significant amount of the infrastructure that we have while still transitioning to, say, a lower emissions future. So we could keep a centralized electrical grid the way we have it with, you know, arguably nuclear energy holds all of the risks that fossil energy has, toxic waste, worker danger, even though statistically the worker harm in nuclear power plants is significantly lower than in power plants. and it, But it, it has all the negatives without the carbon dioxide emissions. And carbon dioxide emissions really has to be our main focus right now. Let's dive into the, to that sort of scenario playing out a little bit, because I think it's interesting to provide what we could imagine being solutions. You know, I, I feel like it's not easy to imagine a world that's changed as much as it needs to. And especially not easy if you don't know of all the pros and cons of different technologies and everything else, you know, because like right now we lived in a 412 parts per million is the amount of carbon in the atmosphere right now. And let's just give ourselves the goal of 350. And secondary, let's give us the goal of never actually overshooting 1.5. You know, so we've we've managed to always keep it under 1.5 and we're back down to 350, which probably would take, I'm going to say, at least until 2075, maybe 2100. Let's play this out. Purist and pragmatist solutions to getting that far. Would you like to go first or shall I? You can go first. <laughs> okay. All right. So, and you can tell me all the ways I'm wrong. This is perfect. So, okay. So the purist approach. I mean, I think the purest approach would basically, you would basically have to accept a lot of the realities that the degrowth movement puts forward, which is, you know, that consumption is a huge root cause of the problem that most of us in, you know, in the Western world would have to consume drastically, drastically less. And that we would need while doing that to also invest a ton of money in rebuilding our infrastructure, in decommissioning all of the fossil fuel and replacing it with different things. You know, I, I interviewed someone from the David Suzuki Foundation a couple of weeks ago or a couple months ago, maybe now, about Canada getting to getting to zero carbon electricity within a very short time frame. And their solution was basically building just a wicked amount of wind power. And that's an option, right? We could invest a just a 
huge amount of money in wind power and invest a huge amount of money in the transmission lines required to make that possible. And you could imagine, and that would be the cheapest way for Canada to do it right now. And again, presuming that we're seeing X, Y, Z other technological improvements, you could easily imagine more geothermal being a part of that. You could easily imagine things like tidal being a part of that and, and so on. But, you know, we, that would have to start today and you'd have to start basically following some sort of plan like that. And that would have to happen here. It would have to happen in the States. It would have to happen, you know, in basically every nation rich enough where it's possible. And it would have to include a whole bunch of money being transferred in to, to nations that are, that are still developing or still dealing with the impacts of the last hundred years of colonialism and all the different ways that the global North has basically put them into debt in both ecological and economic debt to encourage and support their transitions onto renewables as well. I would say on top of all of that, so you're, have massively reduced your emissions. Sorry, you've massively reduced your consumption. And so people are mostly, you know, surviving and creating circular economy type work where you'd probably do much more hyper-local manufacturing. You'd have to bring in a whole bunch of things like that to ensure that you can repair things to make, you know, and along with all those pieces, you would have to probably start significantly densifying our, our world. You know, you would have to, the green, things like the green belt would have to be massively expanded and you would need to rewild whole swaths of areas. You know, the level of consumption would have to drop in ways in which like you would have to see significant drops in beef consumption and other meat because there's no way we can get this far that quickly without, you know, with land use changes back towards forests and rainforests that are now being eaten up by, by those things. And on top of all of those things, Densification should help with public transit. Every, most people would have to stop flying, at least until we got better better air fuels of some nature, which is 50-50 on whether or not we have anything like that. But at some point, you can imagine us being able to fly again. I'm on the airship team, personally. I mean, the airships do sound very cool. <laughs> bring back bring back gigantic blimps. I'm, I'm with it. You know, I think it's <laughs> very fun. You did all of that as fast as possible. You could imagine us getting to like 450 and then maybe peaking. I, I, that's a, a very unscientific number, but let's just say I can do that. Then I had to get from 450 down to 350. And some of the land use changes will help. You know, regenerative agriculture could definitely go a long way. Let's get some, trap a lot more of it, a lot of it in soil. But I still think you're probably also looking at things like, direct air capture, you know, out of the air rather than from fossil fuel uses, except, but again, I like for all the stuff I just mentioned, like that's a ton of steel. That's a huge amount of battery technology. You know, there's a whole bunch of these other things that are still going to be significant disruptions and we'll need a whole bunch of chemical processes that I don't entirely understand. And I'm sure have their own impacts, both ecologically and emissions wise, to get us that far. That's the purest approach, I think. The pragmatist approach for me is probably to get that far, you're still doing probably most of the same things. I think you would just most likely have to, you're going to have the hardest time reducing humans' consumption. I think that, and like, as far as the one thing they're probably going to have the biggest fight to do. And so, like, are there ways in which you don't ratchet down consumption as much and accept waste and then turn waste into biofuels and then try to capture that carbon from burning the biofuels, which has its own problems, but is a possibility that you could consider a pragmatic solution. You know, um, instead of investing so heavily in wind, do you accept the idea of large hydro dams or, or nuclear power that are have their own series of issues, as we've previously mentioned, instead of you know, which would make it a little bit easier to run centralized power grids versus the you know the the other types of power grids you might need. Yes, you know, do you maybe you really believe in alternative fuels in a way that doesn't require you to to stop flying as much or allows EVs to pick up a higher percentage of transportation than 
you know, public transport. But it, it is, I do struggle a little bit to think about what pragmatic means when the disruption is so big. You know, like to get to down to 350 without passing 1.5 at this point is such a monumental task that it is hard to figure out what you could give up, you know, like, or what you could let us keep doing. But what's your thought? I would argue that the scenario you just put forward is not so radical compared to what the IPCC recommends, with the exception of degrowth, which seems to be a thing that all governments anywhere, Northern Hemisphere or not, are not willing to accept because there is a direct correlation between economic growth and societal well-being. I'm doing air quotes, but definitely degrowth would help the situation a lot. Whether it is possible, I'm not sure. I think it's important to start the conversation about getting back to 350 with looking at where the vast majority of greenhouse gas emissions come from. And that is burning fossil fuels, unsurprisingly, but specifically for transport in vehicles and cargo ships and airplanes and just moving things and people around, burning fossil fuels for electricity production and heating and cooling buildings in the world. Those three things together, which are all fossil fuel related and make up the vast majority of the revenues that fossil fuel companies bring in, are responsible for between 65 and 75% of all greenhouse gas emissions that are produced every year. The other sectors, things like petrochemicals, which wouldn't fall into the purest camp, metallurgy, your steel, your other metals production, and agriculture, those three together make up between 15 and 25% of CO2 emissions. So you could get a really far away just by restricting the combustion of fossil fuels and electrifying transport, electricity, and building heating and cooling. Another thing to take into account is that the pragmatist approach, the overshoot scenario that the IPCC projects, doesn't take into account the effects that increased climate change-related destruction will have on the economy. So it just assumes this constant economic growth throughout this whole period of using fossil fuels and overshooting. So it's not really pragmatic in that way, like, but is a, a, a feature of the mathematical model that they've decided to simplify for various reasons. And simplifying models is needed when you do work like that. It doesn't give you an accurate picture, but I think the only accurate idea we have of what these models have given us in the last 40 years is that they are always underestimating the pace at which climate change is happening. In terms of densification as a as a method of reducing consumption by giving people more access to public transit and just sort of keeping the nature around urban centers intact so that it can act as a natural carbon drawdown solution. That type of activity is is already underway and urban centers, including suburbs and the industrial centers that surround urban centers, are responsible for about 75% of CO2 emissions globally already as it is. And CO2 emissions in these urban centers are naturally higher than the ambient 412 ppm. So in city centers, the CO2 concentrations can be anywhere between like 600 and 800 ppm, depending on the landforms around you, whether you're next to the ocean, like there are a lot of natural structures that change that, but they are generally elevated in the ambient because there's just so much more going on than in the, the countryside. So th those are all definite solutions. I would say that the transition to this electrified future is really threatened by the fact that we currently rely on fossil fuels so much to keep us going on a day-to-day -day basis that even trying to transition the economy away from them 
puts us collectively in like I refer to as a hostage as a hostage situation, which is admittedly a little bit of a flagrant phrasing. But we've seen in the last six months how just the fossil fuel industry deciding to limit supply or having it accidentally limit supply due to supply chain issues can really increase our cost of living on a day-to-day basis and like threaten our livelihood while we're trying to make that transition. So it did not take long for the energy markets to see the consequences of Russia just threatening to not send fossil fuels places. That created a huge supply chain disruption. And those fossil fuels don't just, they don't just increase our gas prices and our electricity prices in our homes. They also affect food prices and disproportionately end up hurting the more vulnerable populations in the world, whether it's within a first world country or in the global south. And so really what the IPCC recommends is the that energy efficiency and switch to full electrification that, that would keep us within that 1.5 degrees Celsius. Eventually, hopefully the addition of that, the additional CO2 we could draw down from the air could be from technological sources, which are extremely expensive, but certainly could be done. If you wanted a really purist opinion, I would want to go back down to 277 ppm, which is where the world was before the Industrial Revolution. But I'm not a I'm not an atmospheric scientist, so I don't know what is actually best. Yeah, that's that's fair. <laughs> I mean, that makes sense to me. I mean, 277 is where we were previously for the last thousands and thousands and thousands of years, so that probably makes sense. And it's very I, your point. One thing you did there made me realize that my solution entirely missed the fact that we'd have to retrofit nearly every building. Yes, yeah. In the world, especially ones that have got built, you know, any time in lot like previous, basically anything from 1950 earlier almost certainly has to get retrofitted. And since then, still probably yes, which is a huge undertaking itself. For those who want to hear a little bit about at least one cool way of doing that, a couple of weeks ago, we interviewed Emma Norton from the Recover Initiative who spoke about a way of retrofitting and building retrofitting pieces away from the site and then just attaching them onto the building, which makes it seem a lot easier, but still it's, we're talking such a huge, huge amount. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. We saw on the news last week that essentially no buildings in the UK are set up to withstand 40 degrees Celsius weather. So I'm actually going to flip two questions because I think the ne- this next question fits a little better here, which is this question about how you see building, doing all this building in the face of this problem. It The idea, this is an idea that you brought up to me actually about two years ago in the middle of the pandemic in regards to how the world we currently exist in is over because the transition we would require to make would require so much building and so much difference that either way, either we, the world is ending because we will just, you know, light on fire like the UK did, or the world is ending because we have to build such a different world that it will look so different from where we exist now. It won't be recognizable. And that conversation about trying to build things and how we haven't successfully really felt like we're building anything as a society, I would argue for sort of my entire adult life. I don't know if other people feel differently. And I'm sure this is partially because I live in, you know, Toronto, which has not really built any, like, it's like, it's funny to say that because like our, we've had, you look at Toronto skylines from 1990 to now, and they're, it's absolutely enormous. At the same time, you look at Scarborough subway, Toronto subway or transit map, and it's almost identical. We have a little bit of a purple line and soon, maybe eventually an LRT, but really, you know, it doesn't feel like we're part of this grand build. And the idea that we would have to do like what we're talking about, which is, I would say out of all the major industries, you're sort of remaking all of them. You know, you're moving from 
our current agriculture system to a regenerative agriculture system. You're moving from a centralized energy system to a decentralized energy system. You're retrofitting nearly every building that exists. You're going from a car-centric world to a mass transit-centric world. And you're moving from you know a fossil fuel-dependent energy and everything system to an electrified system is so those are five major 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 parts of our world none of which have we really begun building at any at any speed and so from your perspective sort of in 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 the work you do and sort of in the ways that you see the world how do we do this <laughs> can we do this and like, are there like some places where you're like, I think we could do these two more easily than these three. And maybe we start here or, you know, and go there. Or are you just generally either very optimistic or pessimistic about our abilities whatsoever, which I think would also be very fair. Right. Okay. Yeah. In terms of the amount that we need to build it, it and retrofit is included in this, this build the challenge is that you're trying to balance so many different interests when you plan each one of these projects. I think, for example, you when you're building a big infrastructure project, you not only have to take into account the actual technology performance and whether that investment and spending that carbon to produce that solution that will then reduce the amount of carbon that you're emitting, is one one aspect, but then you have to put that technology somewhere, which uh, might not be palatable for a local community or might be, you know, on land that is not available for any number of reasons, whether it's, yeah, community pushback or a, a vulnerable ecosystem or something like that. An example of that is the Site C Dam in BC, which is very contentious is you know being built it, that that's an example where stakeholder a lot of stakeholder feedback was taken into account to produce this really suboptimal solution from every perspective so now they're putting a a dam in a site that is not optimal the community doesn't want it there and it sort of was this huge compromise that gave us a, a suboptimal solution that nobody likes. And, you know, you can't live in an authoritarian world where you can just bulldoze everyone and say, I'm putting the sustainable infrastructure here. That's not going to fly either because, you know, that's how our current infrastructure was built and it ended up disproportionately affecting more vulnerable communities and poisoning people and having knock-on effects like that. So there is a lot of a lot of rethinking of how we think about rolling out industrial processes that has to go into this rethinking our the the way that we interact with industry the way we think about industrial processes the same way that we are talking about distributed electricity as a solution to this having you know solar panels on every household we have a certain amount of carbon that we can spend to to build this new world, this new net zero world. And the question of whether the life cycle emissions of those new built technologies are carbon negative enough is really an open question and is something people keep arguing about. So you mentioned previously, for example, the development of alternative fuels, sustainable fuels. And the IPCC reports, you know, for example, talk about the those fuels that could be made from waste sources like bioenergy or organic waste or fuels made from carbon dioxide but those might only sequester carbon dioxide some of the projections think only for weeks you would keep that carbon dioxide out of the air if you take that approach and those types of questions of what we should build how we should draw down the carbon with these new initiatives are really business-based questions. So a business might have a product that they're trying to sell 
that consumes carbon dioxide, but the question of whether that product is actually carbon negative or is allowing us to transition to a carbon negative world is sort of questionable and very much up for debate in the community. Those projections are always being argued about. For example, I recently read about a brewery in British Columbia that was going carbon negative by capturing its carbon dioxide from its beer brewing setup and using the carbon dioxide to make like alcoholic seltzer water or something like that. And I thought to myself, great, you took this super pure concentrated stream of carbon dioxide, which would be super easy to catch. Like that's the perfect type of carbon dioxide to capture using technological carbon dioxide. And you turned it into a product that we can now go into the world and burp out in the most distributed way possible. <laughs> so sort of asking questions like that are really a big part of what the carbon economy community is is discussing right now, but are ultimately business-driven messaging and decisions and have to do with whether companies are really taking into account their scope three emissions, which most of them don't. In terms of bigger infrastructure, retrofitting should be an option because tearing down these buildings is wasteful in, in itself. I think that's definitely a way forward. And the densification and improvement of public transport, which is admittedly extremely difficult in Canada, is also important. I would also say that energy energy efficiency has improved significantly in Ontario since the 90s. The problem with that, and there's a name for this scaling law that has escaped me right now, but when you make systems more efficient, your overall consumption does not go down because those systems respond by just consuming more. So those efficiencies are, ma are really only felt by the businesses that are selling that product. They're, they're making more money off of it. So we really need to rethink the way that we are, are designing these resource systems, whether you know some of the regenerative agricultural practices could be brought into urban centers, for example, to start using more natural carbon dioxide removal strategies inside cities, start thinking about electrifying everything that we can electrify so that the things we do need to burn are restricted to chemical production, which will still be required, and metallurgical processes. But those are really the minority of, of emissions. The next thing I just want to touch on briefly, because you mentioned the and we talked we've sort of talked about it a few times this CCUS which is carbon capture utilization and storage or direct air capture or you know you gave about four other different words for it is quite contentious in a few different for different reasons different ways and you work in in that field in adjacent sort of of how to use carbon and, and things like that but also you also understand its own limitations so I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about where you see it if you see it useful in certain positions, and then also just this kind of funny way that people keep trying to change its name. I feel like as I've talked about it over time, I keep having to learn a new acronym. Yes. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So my work focuses on carbon dioxide capture and conversion specifically for chemicals production. So even in our net zero world, we will still need chemicals. Solar panels use PVA adhesives to stick all the layers together. Those are petrochemicals that could potentially be made from renewable sources like biomass or carbon dioxide. The flip side of that is using carbon dioxide capture and conversion to justify the use of burning fossil fuels. And so really this, this contentious argument is over the type of energy that we're continuing to use in the future. I personally work on solar-driven chemical processes, so using sunlight to convert carbon dioxide into these materials that will be needed for future renewable energy technologies. But there is a large contingent of people that are working on converting carbon dioxide back into combustible fuels that you can burn in your car or burn in a power plant. And those are of questionable carbon negativity, but are part of a larger 
idea about humanity that I am sort of obsessed with at the moment, which is this concept of whether humans can let go of fire as a technology to begin with to to get to this carbon negative world. And that is sort of a scary thing, given that fire has been with us for <laughs> hundreds of thousands of years and longer, probably, honestly, but is really the main the main source of our CO2 emissions in the atmosphere is just from burning fossil fuels, burning biomass, burning garbage. And we use fire for everything. We use it to heat our houses. We use it to drive our cars. The furnaces in some of our houses use uh, nat burn natural gas. We burn it just in our lives, like with birthday candles and things like that. It's such a pervasive part of our lives that I, I wonder if we can ever give it up as a technology, but is really at the center of this debate surrounding CCS right now. What I love about this, and this is sort of the last conversation we want to get to, so I appreciate the very easy segue. But what I love about it is that cultural piece, right? I, as a curiosity, I, I sort of tested this over the weekend. I, I, I was sitting around a campfire and I threw out this conversation that we would be having in regards to what the last fire humanity would theoretically have to burn and if we could get past burning fire altogether. And got relatively uniformal disapproval of giving up fire from those who were currently sitting around this fire. <laughs> and, you know... This is a campfire. It's, you know, at the time was cooking our dinner, so it had a particular purpose. <laughs> and yet there is very clearly, as you mentioned, like even birthday candles, et cetera, there are, someone said like, what about fireworks? Can we still have fireworks? And my head was like, no, I think that counts. I'm pretty sure that's still emitting CO2 and, and, and in a way that is like, honestly, like really superfluous. If you're going to get rid of fires, you're probably getting rid of the fun fires first before Sadly, you get yes. rid of the other fires. <laughs> but it is really culturally meaningful. And, you know, it people sort of differentiate human history from before we had fire and after we had fire, you know, as one of the major turning points, you know, maybe before agriculture being next. So, I do think there's something really, really meaningful there, but maybe start there. Like when you think about it, about giving up fire, how do you think about it? For me, it started with thinking about what was preventing us really from moving away from fossil fuels on a, on a non-business or industrial or science level. And these fires gave us like so much industrial processes, they were really at the heart of the industrial revolution. And the, the biggest fires that we're burning are the ones that use fossil fuels. I think the idea of phasing out fire is interesting because it would really usher in this entirely new sense of humanity that we need to build this new world. We need to rethink all of our systems, all of the industrial processes that we have. And people out there have grappled with this idea of getting rid of fossil fuel or biomass-based fires in different ways. So there are people who are chasing you know, alternative fires like burning hydrogen or ammonia or more biomass, for example. But if we maintain if we maintain this dependence on combustive heat as our main energy source and we don't try to electrify to a critical point where we no longer need them and we can make our new materials with just electricity and and build more electricity capacity using electricity, like we get to that critical point where it just starts to snowball, then we can start to think about an actual, a, a truly sustainable and emission-free society. When it comes to, and, and it's interesting to me to think about using the carbon budget and building new infrastructure to get to that point by thinking about the number of fires we have left to burn. So are we burning them to make solar panels? Are we burning them to drive carbon capture units? You know, are we burning them with fireworks? Are we burning them along with minerals to <laughs> make colors in the sky? That's also sort of wasteful. But it is and is definitely like a pie in the sky idea that I've been rolling around. But it's it's really, I think, at the heart of what is 
what is holding us back from this sort of subconsciously, I think. Yeah. Well, and I think it is such an interesting way of thinking about the the carbon budget as like we have this number of fires left to burn because they're a vast, vast, vast majority of greenhouse gas emissions come from some type of combustion or some type of fire. You know, like, yes, there is methane from cow farts, et cetera. But if we're talking about carbon, especially, it's a huge percentage of it. And so out of curiosity, as a final question for the for the for the discussion, let's presume we really nail it. Let's get let's presume <laughs> that we that we actually go back to that, you know, that early part of the conversation where we get we're 25th, uh, so, yeah, where we try to get down to 350 parts per million, never going over 1.5 by say 2100. What is the last fire that we have to burn? Because as you said, there are a whole bunch that we do right now that we could easily get rid of, right? You know, it'd be very, very simple to stop burning most things for, say, transportation, for example. It'd be relatively simple to avoid burning fires for a whole number of other operations. Most people currently don't need to use fire to cook meals and with some with with a commitment to wealth redistribution, you could make that zero people. And with a commitment to people to stop using gas, for wealthy nations to stop using gas ovens, which for, I hear and understand, very bad for you, I discovered. Like in case you people are wondering out there, if you are thinking about changing your, or getting a new oven, do not get a gas oven. For, I hear some chefs thinks it's better and maybe it is better for cooking, but like the air pollution you're putting in your house is very bad. So, Generally speaking, most of society would be better off if we could move on from lighting things on fire to do a bunch of this work. But there's other pieces that are harder, you know, as you mentioned, like metallurgy and other like that. So what would be the last fire? Beyond, I'm going to say that we maybe maybe we would do a ceremonial last fire that would just be like one on a beach or something somewhere. <laughs> and And, you know, and we can never get rid of like, the existence of forest fires. So it's not like we would never see fire again, but like human created fire for a particular purpose. What's the one that you think is the hardest or the the last one that we could end up needing? I would think that it would be a metallurgical process, like maybe silicon production or something like that for photovoltaic panels. Some of the the really the really really high temperature hard to do metallurgical processes like silicon production for sure and it's worth it's worth understanding that metallurgical processes are different from fossil fuel processes because you're burning this fire to make a product that will then produce electrical energy continuously over time rather than just burning that quantity of fossil fuels once and then just being done with because you you used all the heat so I, I would vote that the last fire would be maybe a, a silicon refinery fire. Is that because it's so hot that it's hard to replace? Or is it because that you can imagine that being like the most useful fire in terms of making other fires not useful? I thought of it just of the, the temperatures required and the alternative options that exist right now for making other metals like steel and the rare earths and things like that, you could theoretically make those using hydrogen, hydrogen fire (laughs) Um, (laughs) instead. But I I think ultimately the last fire would be one that's going to make some, some renewable energy technology. Right. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. And especially given also because yeah, the heat is some of the biggest challenges in these things. Getting things to as hot as they have to be is quite difficult in seemingly most other ways. Yeah. And another interesting, sorry, another point that I just came to my head from something that you said earlier was about the, the amount of wind capacity that we have to build and how that's related. In my head, that's really related to nuclear energy in an interesting way because the the minerals that you have to mine for those magnets that are in wind turbines, those naturally occur in the same mineral ores as a lot of nuclear fuels. So if you are building all of these wind turbines, 
you will inevitably have this waste stream of radioactive waste coming off of those refineries for those magnet for that magnet energy sorry the magnet motor production and you might as well like instead of having a radioactive tailings pond you might as well turn that into carbon free energy so that's a that's an example of sort of the the purist versus pragmatist approach that might have more layers than than immediately appears yeah, I, I I feel like if I've learned anything from this conversation, and I've learned a lot, but I think if the one thing I think that is most stuck in my brain is that there are no climate purists. We are no. all just choosing the pragmatism that we think suits us best. You know, out there, it's a world of trade-offs. And so we're we're just sitting here all claiming to be pragmatists. And maybe we all are, but maybe our demonization of anybody else as purists is what's off, that there are just no climate purists whatsoever. Again, the, I, unless the degrowth folks want to come in and argue that they are, that's them. But I would argue that at the same time, you're then giving up, you know, there's a big challenge there in terms of even what we talked about, like you still have to build a whole bunch of wind turbines and they still have radioactive waste. So maybe the purists are the sort of the made-up boogeyman for everyone. Definitely. I feel that way towards the pushback against carbon capture, utilization, and storage. I think people who are against CCUS are both pro-science and anti-science simultaneously because they're pro-science in the sense that they are following the IPCC recommendations that claim that CCUS is too risky and too far off in the future, but they're anti-science in the sense that they're sort of denying that technological innovation can take place ever. So it's definitely not not that clear cut. Yeah. Well, um, thank you so much for this very interesting conversation. I think I've got a, I got a title. Very rarely do I have a title for that at the end of the conversation, but that there are no climate purists, I think will be the title of this episode. Oh, good, um, yeah. <laughs> thank you so much, Alex Tavasoli. The a postdoctoral associate with MIT and a friend of the show. Really appreciate having you on. And do you have any last thoughts you want to share with our listeners before we go? There was a very good breakdown of the trade-offs associated with the IPCC report and how it deals with carbon dioxide capture and utilization and how it trades off different solutions from the Center for International Environmental Law called IPCC Unsummarized, came out recently, a couple months ago, but I, I highly recommend it. It's a, a really good overview of sort of the contradictions associated with how those models are built and gives a good idea of the different factors at play that are actually making the decisions of how we move forward.